Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Tonight is the second lecture of the seven Jewish historians as I was going to talk about. And uh, the second one is Azari de Rossi, and we'll, let's pl- uh, plunge uh, right into it. The, uh, the, some of you, many of you here where we talked about Josephus last time. Uh, Josephus was unusual. Uh, remember, he's the only guy from that time that was interested in history, wrote a history book. There are no other Jews uh, that did that, the genre of history. Uh, the rabbis at the time of Josephus weren't writing anything. It's still in the golden age of the Torah Shabbat Pem, which they were opposed in principle to writing books, but uh, Josephus wasn't. Now, in the next 1,000 years, that's a long time, I'll change my mind. In the next 1,500 years, that's a very long time, there was no interest in history during the Middle Ages in the modern sense of the term history. Um, there were, well, let's put it, there was nobody who updated Josephus' antiquities. Remember, he took it from the creation of the world down to his time. Nobody picked the ball up and took it forward from where he did it. What you had, because there's always some interest in the past, in the Middle Ages were some chronicles, which is not the same thing as a history book, mainly about two subjects. First of all, people want to know about the Shalshalas and Kabbalah, which means how did the Jewish, the rabbinic tradition unfold? Moshe Kibbal Torah Messina, Messiah Yeshua, Yeshua Zakanim. How does all that work out? Give me some clarity. That has to do mainly, even that is something that's not really in, in, in rabbinically uh, you know, genuine. It had to do with the Karaites, who in the early part of the Middle Ages, challenged the entire rabbinic tradition in principle, and they said the whole Gemara is made up as a bunch of baloney, and uh, the rabbi just made up as they went along, and in order to counter that, they said, oh no, Moshe had it, and then he passed it down to this generation, and this went 40 generations down to the Talmud, and from the Talmud on to what you call the Gaoni, oh no, no, no. So Shuragon, for example, most famously living in the 10th century, composes this whole kind of uh, 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 document in which he tries to say, the chain of command going down the ages. Many of you possibly are more familiar with the Rambam's uh, famous uh, unfolding of that in his intro to the Mishnah Torah. Uh, another very famous book along these lines, the Rived, uh, not the Rived, but the Rived, Avram ben David in Spain in the uh, 1000s, I think, when, uh, or 1100s was it? And uh, again, he's basically interested, you know, which set of rabbis come after the other set of rabbis. So this is beyond elitism, they just want to know who is the bearers of our tradition, right? So I hear this, this is a culture in which you study the Gemara and the commentaries and want to know, just, you know, is Rashi first or is this guy first or, or that? That's not really about history. And it called a couple of stories. In addition to that, you have chronicles in the Middle Ages um, of a martyrdom of Gezeros and Kedesh Hashem, uh, the Crusades, um, you know, here, take a look, there's a book that came, it published in, in, in Yiddish, in Vilna, I think. The Naya Shevet Yehuda Sholem. The Shevet Yehuda is a classic book about the sufferings of the Jews in 1492. Oh, this one offers you more than that. It gives you all the, all the suffering, so you can have a good time in the nine days reading this book. What do you have? The, I can't read it all. It says, the Shevet Yehuda Sholem. You have the Sveta Kreitzfer, the Second Crusade. Oh, boy, that's fun. You know, then you have the Xeris 
and, and they also add Xeris Tachvatat about Chemelnitsky's massacres. Uh, it doesn't get better than this, you know what I mean? <laughs> you, you, you have what to, what to talk about. This is what they call history. Now, it's not history, it's accounts, it's chronicles. It's tales of specific you know, stories over there, mainly for the purpose of uh, edification. Similar situation, by the way, is in the non-Jewish world, in the Christian world, uh, European historians, there weren't any. What you had was this sort of thing, you had monks copying manuscripts in the Middle Ages, and maybe they chronicled too or here or there, but not any kind of business of trying to understand, as we would understand today, modern historical causality, what are the causes and unfolding and all that kind of business. Uh, remember, in the Middle Ages, which is what I'm talking about, which lasted a long time, there is the overwhelming influence of totalizing medieval culture, which means everything is religious. If you're a Christian, especially in Christian Europe and all these countries in Western and Central Europe, the music is Christian music to be used on Christian occasions. Chasanas, funerals, plays, uh, you know, play itself, you know, you know, mishak, uh, as they call it, uh, clothing, uh, architecture, everything is for the greater glory of God, meaning everything's for subsumed under a religious rubric. And uh, that's one of the reasons why the Ashkenazi Jews, as I've said many times, were culturally insular, because there wasn't any books out there except of a Christian uh, nature. Now, in, in, in a case of a, listen closely, in a case of, a, of an overwhelmingly religious kind of mindset, there's no humanism. And by that I mean there's no interest in man as such. The influence is on God. You follow? The, the, the man, as he relates or she relates to God. And you wonder if somebody's good or bad or something like that, how do they relate? In each religious tradition looks at its own lenses uh, to God. Uh, if you want to know about uh, you know, the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, how does God do it? You see, he's at the center of the, uh, of the study. And then comes the Renaissance, as we know, at least in Western Europe, which uh, is basically a phenomenon of the Italian peninsula, primarily. Here's Italy, which is, I'm sure you know, after you, uh, this crowd has been with me before, Italy didn't exist as a single country until 1870. And so in the old days, a bunch of different countries. So two-thirds of the country, two-thirds was just the kingdom of Naples, and the papal state, this is the territory owned by the pope, ruled by the pope as a king. Remember, again, I'm sure many of you do, that the pope wears two hats in the old days. One hat is the head of the church, which he still wears, and then separate from that, he owns a country. <laughs> it's not bad work if you could get it. You know, it's, 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 he owns a country, and that country was called the papal states, the states of the pope, which as you see is the territories throughout the middle of Italy. There were a lot of wars, I'll show you in a minute, um, movie about that, and uh, you know, battles which territories the pope should get against this duke or that republic or stuff like that. And then in the north, and that's what we're going to be talking about today, north of these two countries, this is two-thirds of the country, right? Here's one country, here's another. And then to the north, there's a whole bunch of different little colors, a whole bunch of different little states, which makes the um, Renaissance so interesting or confusing if you're trying to follow a movie or read a book, you know. Where's the Duchy of Ferrara in relation to the Duchy of Mantua? And how does Venice get involved in a war against Florence? And, you know, you, after a while, you just give up and you say, the Italians, you know how it goes. And... Uh, What's, what, what do we mean when we say the Renaissance, which means the rebirth? So what, the Renaissance is a loaded term, but what it means is a little bit of secularity, a little bit of, of, of humanism, not a lot. So when we think of people like this, Michelangelo and Leonardo uh, da Vinci, who are, of course, classical figures that everybody's heard of, being big shots in, and very important figures in the Italian Renaissance, what they mean is that they're interesting because they move a little bit uh, from religion. What I'm trying to say is the following, and get this straight, because this is going to inform 
Everything I'm going to be talking about tonight. Middle Ages, all religious. Nowadays, all atheist. Renaissance, half and half. Okay, get it? Now, now culture, all atheist. All material, whatever word you like. The, uh, in, 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 in those days, all religious. You follow? And in the, and, and in the, in the middle, like especially the Renaissance, 50-50. Actually, more like 90-10. To be honest, still 90% religious, 10% or not. We could debate that, but you get the general idea. Now, um, that's interesting. It means that for the first time in Christian Europe, they were going to allow a little bit of secular. It should still be overwhelmingly Catholic. And so classics are okay. Classics mean the Romans and the Greeks. Nobody is going to convert back to worshiping Jupiter or Minerva or something. So you can have a Renaissance painting of a parade of Julius Caesar, such as you see over here. Even though it doesn't involve Jesus, it doesn't involve a Bible picture, it's okay if it's about the Romans, you know, famous sorts of things. The classics are, are okay. Humanism is okay. What kind of picture is this in a religious culture? Is this a picture of a girl? Mona Lisa, right? Who, who cares about a girl? Who cares about a guy? You, you understand what I'm saying? In the Middle Ages, there's no picture stomp of a person. It's, it's a Jesus. It's a saint. Maybe a king. You know, some big shot like that. All right. A regular person. You say, like, no, I'm interested in a person because of a person. Person, Adam la Haveldama. You know, what's, what's a person? You know, a person is a piece of junk. You're here today, gone tomorrow. You know, you're, you're, you're nothing. Right? God is everything. You're, you're, you're nothing. Why do we care? And here, Leonardo said like this, I'm interested in Lisa. <laughs> you know, get it? It's just interesting to me. So that's humanism. You follow? Now, um, all this is happening in Italy. The Renaissance also saw beginnings, among other things, of historical criticism. A little bit. Okay? So you have people like Lorenzo Valla. These are a bunch of names of people who start looking at the past and just asking a few questions. Not too many questions. But, you know, is this part true? Or how do, you know, if you have a history of this in this period... How do you know it's accurate? Maybe there's a little exaggeration, you know, maybe not. Can we compare what it says one place over the other? Not much. History as a humanist discipline emerges, studying human causality with an emphasis on human psychology and personality. Here's the famous Guicciardini, he's famous now, that uh, is the most famous, uh, uh, he's actually a famous person. In, um, uh, I learned about him in TA in the 11th grade, just for your information. So, uh, the uh, Francesco Guicciardini, the, the, uh, he writes the history of Italy of uh, 40 years when he was a macher in the events, time of the Borgias and all that junk, you know. And uh, it's very interesting. He knew the players. And so he says, France got into a war with, with Florence because of this and this reason, and this Italian ruler messed up because I knew him, and he had trouble making decisions. That's who, how he was. You follow? And the other country got hit with an economic problem, and he didn't respond to it well. No, God plays no role in this. Now, he's, Francisco Guicciardini was an official of the Pope. He is a firm Christian. But when he's writing the account of the times in which he participated, it's a very classic book called History of Italy, which is really a history of 30, 40 years. Um, it's very famous. And when he does, he writes like, a, so to speak, a modern person. This is brand new. To look at history the way you and I generally understand the term today, it more or less starts with him. Now, how did all this affect the Jews of Italy? What exactly is the situation of the Jews in the Italian peninsula in the 16th century. Uh, right off the bat, you understand, and I'll say in a few moments, uh, forget about this, the Kingdom of Naples, because that's conquered early in the 1500s by Spain. And it doesn't take too long for Spain to apply the Spanish rules, which is Jews out. 
just like they expelled the Jews in 1492 from the Spanish Peninsula, a little bit later in the 1500s, they expel all the Jews, uh, period, from the Kingdom of Naples. So there's no Jews legally allowed to live as Jews in the you know, southern part of Italy for hundreds of years. I'll repeat again, for hundreds, until the 1800s. Okay? So just right off the bat, forget that. What about the middle, the papal states? That's tricky. It depends on the Pope. We did that earlier, a year or two ago, when we talked about the burning of the books, right? Your, your earlier popes in the 1500s uh, were better to the Jews. Generally speaking, the less from they were, the better were to the Jews, okay? The best pope for the Jews, Borgia, <laughs> okay? Right? Because he's not too worried about the Christian parts. Uh, and, and he wants a Jewish doctor? Because, as Heinrich Gretz puts it all the rest of the way, he can't trust a Christian doctor. They slip him a poison. I know the Borgias never heard about poison, but, you know, but... <laughs> But, but he said, the Jewish doctor is not going to do it. Now, uh, it's, it's very interesting. So, so if there's a history of the Jews in Italy, and if there's an interesting and significant history of Jews of Italy, it's going to be here in the 15, 16, 17, 1800s. From here all the way up, especially all this messy area. You see a bunch of little countries, right? Little duchies and so forth, uh, which are very interesting to visit and very architecturally fancy. And, and you know, it, they are really interesting. The Jews were expelled from Sicily in 1492, from Naples in 1541, from almost all of the papal states in 1569. Look at this. Here, in this color is blue. Is from here to here is the papal states, and all the Jews are kicked out by I think Pius IV or Paul V. Um, what you call it? Uh, in the late 1560s, and even before that, they started turning the screws on them. The only place, the only exception was Jews were permitted to live here in Rome and here in Ancona. As you can sort of see, this is the port city that has the trade and commerce with the Middle East, and so the Pope needs that revenue. You get it? But everywhere else, uh, he doesn't like it. And even in here, those who were possibly were with me, we talked a little while ago about that lady, uh, Gracia Mendez. She, her whole boycott that she wanted was to save the Muranos from Ancona. You understand? Uh, which she was not able to do, but the non-Muranos who were living there, the Italian Jews, who never converted to Christianity, and the uh, other Sephardic Jews from here who settled there were not touched by the Pope. They were just subjected to all kinds of uh, gizeros and discrimination. There's a, this Ancona, just for the heck of it, is an important Jewish community. has famous rabbis down to the 17, early 1800s. So what can I do? It depends where and when, if we're talking about Italy. Um, the only exception, Venice, by the way, was real tough during this time, every 10 years. Here's Venice. This whole city Republic of Venice is not just a city. Venice itself had conquered a big territory, big territory, um, which is part of the wisdom of the uh, sneaky part of the Venetian state. Uh, they kind of defined the Renaissance intriguers, and they're very successful at it. And uh, Venice was very tough on the Jews. Every 10 years, the contract had to be renegotiated. And every time, without exception, they drove hardball bargains, and they took it up to, the, you know, to, to, to a minute to 12. Get it? No, it's basically the way they bargain with the job Jews crazy. It's a minute to 12, you guys get out of here. And only at 12, at 30 seconds to 12, do they say, all right, well, let's just stay under these and these extra conditions and this and extra money. That's who they were. So the only exceptions where the Jews have it fairly good in the 1500s, where our story takes place, are three cities near each other, each of which was part of a different country. And it's, uh, no, go, let's go back. It's uh, Mantua, which you see is a tiny Medina. Look how small that is. The Duchy of Mantua, the Duchy of Modena, which is here to here, 
and the Duchy of Ferrara. So uh, on my trip, I know some, I see some people, we went to Ferrara. Uh, we didn't go to Mantua or, or Modena. Um, these are all, once upon a time, these little towns which are architectural jewels. They're very interesting to visit. They're very pretty, all the rest of it. Got a lot of Jewish history. And one time or another, in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, they were important Jewish, you'd be surprised, they were important Jewish centers. You walk in the Jewish neighborhood, it's not very big at all. And uh, it was a big yeshiva there once. It was a famous scholarship. It was this, and that was the other. It's, it's, it's quite uh, interesting. Uh, now, I say there were exceptions. There were relative exceptions. Here, the Duke of uh, Ferrara, uh, here are the three dukes. The, uh, the Este family, which, which ruled uh, Ferrara, they were, good, they were good to the Jews, okay? The uh, dynasty of the Estes. And uh, they, they, they were always fighting the Pope, <laughs> right? And they want to have their own, uh, you know, independence. Uh, in the long, long, long run, at the end of the 1500s, the Pope wins and takes over the Medina. But until then, because their, their family line ran out, but until then, they made a good show of it. And uh, this is Hercules, the uh, Este. Let's go to the next one. Uh, here, Hercules, Ercole, when the Pope says burn the Gomorrahs, they do that. Okay? So when I say the Jews have it okay, relatively speaking, I mean, this guy was not exactly a 20th century democratic liberal, okay? But for the Jews, no, I mean it. But for, for, but for Jewish terms, uh, it's as good as it gets. You understand? And, and, and that's how it goes. Now, the Italian Jewish culture that emerges in these centuries, in the 15th, 16th, 17th century, very unique. First of all, everywhere is small, tiny communities. It's 100, 500 people is already a whole lot. 1,500 people is huge, you understand? And we have more than that here in Shomri Muna. Um, they have a from haskala. Isn't that an interesting term? Okay? Meaning that they are Shomer Shabbos and all that without question. Uh, on the other hand, you'll find a wide spectrum of frumkite in these small communities in Italy. You have right, left, center. On the right are Agoda types. Only Gemara, Halacha, that's it. If there is any other interest, Kabbalah. Understand? And you even have people who are so frump that they'll say Kabbalah is like a, a newfangled thing and you shouldn't waste your time with that. Stick the shots and post game. That's on the right. Then you have, uh, on the left, you have people that say like this, of course you're Shemr Shabbos, of course the Torah misses, but uh, science, uh, math, uh, Latin, Greek, the Christian uh, writings of the church fathers in the New Testament, uh, anything written by the classics, modern Italian stuff, that's coming down the line all the time. Uh, Torah Mata, as we would say, you know, uh, or better yet, Torah and culture. Uh, and, and, and they were even writing Hebrew uh, books about this. I was just looking the other day. Judah Messer Leon's son writes a book, Sheva Hanashim, in praise of women against the guy who wrote a whole book that was uh, following which classic author writes the, was it Euripides or somebody has the whole thing against the women, you know. And it, usually you don't find rabbis writing these kinds of books. In Italy, Mephrechnish Kinkashis, you know, you find all kinds of things. And then you have the, the masses in the middle which are, you know, as always in the middle, a little more this way sometimes, a little more that way, and that's how life was lived. Now, um, what's interesting is that uh, the primacy is on the Gemara, but nevertheless, you have Chasho rabbis in Italy in the 14, 15, 1600s, 1700s, with college education, which is unusual in the Jewish world. There were a number of universities, most famously the University of Padua, but it was also the University in Bologna, which will play a, a part in our story tonight, uh, in Bologna and uh, in Pisa, a few places like that, in which they did have Jewish uh, uh, graduates, as you say over here. wasn't so easy, but, but it could be done. It was done. And so you'll be surprised to find a safer written by somebody. It looks very from and all the rest of it. And the guy had an MD. 
or some equivalent degree. Some of these guys had law degrees, believe it or not, out of Bologna, and you'd, and, 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 and you'd be surprised. But when you look in their writings, you'll see there will be a reference here and there to some Latin author or some, some Greek thing or, uh, or something along those lines. I mean, just off the top of my head, the Sephorno comes to mind. Somebody like that, right? Who you consider to be a very from guy. And it was a very from guy. It was a very from uh, person. But you'll find, you know, all these little references here and there. And you'd be surprised. You wouldn't find it among his Polish contemporaries. And there are more people like that. But you will find it in Italy. Um, Italy is affected by Western culture and their attitude towards Chinuch. This is the only place in the early modern period which you actually have schools. Uh, it's very fascinating. I hope to do later with you to see Simcha Asaf. Famous historian has his told a mikorot letoldo a chinuch Yisrael. These all these uh, wonderful source documents. They collected thousands of them about the way chinuch was or wasn't conducted in the good old days in Italy. At the age of three, you know it's very great. At the age of three, you start the olive bays, and then only at four do you do you know this, and then you do the whole. You learn ivrit, then you do chumish, and a little bit like the Mishnah says, you know. You finish the whole Chumash straightforward, and afterwards you learn with Rashi, then you do Tanakh, and only after that, then you do Mishnah, you understand, you go through, and only after that you do the Talmud, with emphasis on getting the grammar right, and all this kind of business. And uh, we have wonderful documents from Ferrara and other communities over there in which they have Avada Chinuch, believe it or not, which is shocking by the standards of Ashkenaz Europe, and uh, you know, with a curriculum out there, uh, even more shocking, there's schools for girls, you understand, which is just unheard of, you know. And uh, not in Italy, you get it? And it won't be, it, listen, it's not America, they're not going to learn Gemara, but they'll, but they'll have all kinds of, uh, you know, uh, which guy, Chumash uh, and, and, and uh, Diktuk and uh, Ivrit. And you will find this, this type of classically educated Jewish female, they will find in Italy, you won't find uh, in, in, in other places. So what I'm trying to share with you is a world of small Jewish communities, very important communities. By the way, there was a, uh, let's go back to the map just for a second, two, three, go. There was a very important, I just want you to know, there was a very important yeshiva here in Padua that lasted 400 years. That's a long time where I come from, okay? That's a long time, that was like Volodzhan, you understand? People know to run by the Katsunola and Bogan family and people like that. It was a Yiddish-speaking yeshiva until like near Israel, they started talking English, in that case Italian. And uh, just, um, just, I just want you to consider here we are living in Baltimore, where Nerez was, what, like 80 years or something like that? And uh, here you're talking about a place where they had a yeshiva, and it's in a ghetto, meaning in a, in a, in a neighborhood. Didn't have a ghetto yet. Then in a neighborhood, uh, hundreds of years. So, uh, you know, that just gives you a little bit of idea of the richness and the unusual and unexpected sorts of things you find in the Italian uh, communities of those days. And what I really want to get across is this wonderful paradox where cultural insularity cohabits with cultural awareness. Hear what I said? Cultural insularity cohabits with cultural awareness. The typical Jewish graduate of Bologna or Padua University compartmentalizes. It's more like near Israel than YU. You see? There's no attempt. In fact, they're opposed to synthesis. They want to hear about that. This is what we do at work, and this is what we do in the ghetto. You see? This is what I know as a scientist. This is what I know as a frontier. And there's two separate compartments. And Isaiah Ross is going to break through that a little bit. Um, and, you know, one, one, one has nothing to do uh, in, in their mind with the other. The 16th century in general, the 1500s, is tough on the Jews, due mainly to the mid-century popes, the zeal of the Jesuits, and the spirit of the Counter-Reformation. So here we have our cast of villains. Here is the two bad popes that turn all of around. They burn the Gemaras. They set up the, uh, he's the guy that sets up 
kumnim is absurd is with the famous papal bull that the Jews should be put into ghettos and taken away from all jobs except selling old clothes and you know reduced to terrible penury, meaning he has a very machmer dick way of reading Catholic doctrine. Catholic doctrine is you can't kill him, right? But you can pressure him. So we're going to put on as much pressure as we can, make life miserable for them, so to get them to, uh, to, to convert. Uh, both of these popes were real bad. Loyola, of course, founded the Jesuits. The Jesuits are super from, uh, very zealous, they had a lot of zeal, and part of their zeal is to convert the Jews, especially in Italy, for crying out loud, you know, the headquarters of the Catholic religion, and so they'll make life pretty doggone miserable uh, for the Jews during this century, especially in the middle century. So we're talking about expulsions, burnings of the Talmud, and forced sermons, okay? Here's a uh, sign, okay, in one of the churches, I think, is, I forget where it's in, it'll, it'll tell you right over here, and he says, it is a sign that's there today. And what does it say? Monuments of Gateway, goes back to, the, to, to Augustus, read the last sentence. For centuries, this church was packed every Saturday with Jews, Saturday, I tell you, uh, forced by decree to listen to Christian sermons. So, Shachris uh, is at six, Shul's over at nine, and they're like 11, th- no, this is true though. I mean, it sounds funny, but it wasn't funny, you understand? At 11.30 or 1.30 or something like this, you have to go. The way they did it was like this, X number of people in the community. You get it? So in other words, every, every week, uh, depending on the size of the community, let's do argument's sake, 50 Jews, 70 Jews, you have to go and you have to listen to the sermons. There's a whole literature with this. Some of the real frummies who were forced to go probably put wax in the ear, and therefore the, the church sends a priest around to take the wax out, and uh, it's a whole long uh, kind of business. And I'll tell you right now, to survive this, I mean, it's not a dumb idea. Plenty of Jews will convert under this system. You know, you'll sit here and you'll say, well, who's going to fall for that balloon? It's not true. When you hear this pounded into you week after week, you know, it does after a while get to you. You understand? I mean, the Catholic Church was not stupid. And so it was really tough uh, being Jewish, as you can see over here. In general, I would point out, and this is important for our story tonight, that in the 16th century, especially in Italy, there was a, um, an intellectual attack on Judaism. A lot of this has to do with the Counter-Reformation, since the Catholic Church was challenged by the Protestants early in the 1500s. Martin Luther started in 1519, 1520, and you know Martin Luther got away with it, and so for the first time, the Catholic Church monopoly on Christianity was successfully challenged. By that, I mean they weren't able to burn them, so, and then other guys popped up, so the Church realized uh, after a while, they didn't want to, but they realized after a while, there are some problems with us, and we have to mechazic ourselves and get rid of some of the worst abuses. I'll give you an example. Remember Martin Luther said that the Pope is selling indulgences. So in other words, you can do an Avera, and then if you pay money, you know, that, you, that, that gets you off your hell. You know? So that was very offensive. And they got rid of that sort of thing, and they tightened up the uh, business. You don't have any more Borgia Popes after the uh, Counter-Reformation. They're from, you see? And, well, that's interesting, but they're from. And um, uh, part of that, therefore, is a, is a chizuk of Catholicism, which is an impressive intellectual tradition, whatever you want to say, and uh, therefore it expresses itself in many ways, and part of the ways is to come up with new arguments and a zeal against the Protestants and against the Muslims, but locally against the Jews. And so if you're Jewish, there's a whole bunch of books and things like that, media, that come out now, somewhat similar to what you do today, I feel sorry for the regular Jew, not like yourself and myself, who's already fortified very much with our own culture, and we don't have to worry, I hope, about reading all the, but imagine a kid in public school, just, uh, you know, in Baltimore or anywhere else, who's just Jewish, and he doesn't know much of anything, and he goes on the news, and he flips, and he surfs the internet, 
And, oh my God, you know, everything's terrible about Judaism after a while. It kind of gets to you. You understand? And he doesn't benefit from the cultural insularity, more intense or less intense, that you and I enjoy. I repeat, enjoy. And he doesn't have any benefit as this boy or girl, and it really gets to them. So that's what happens in, in the um, in Middle Ages, in the 15th century, I mean, I'll say it right, in the, in the in the 16th century. And so uh, what really happens in, in, in Italy is a revival of the 13th century's intellectual assaults on Judaism. I don't know if you remember, we talked about this early, but this is the time of the Ramban, okay? And Raymond de Penaforte was the famous head of the Catholic Church, the, the tip of the spear in the 1200s in Aragon. And uh, here's a classic religious, there's a picture of a classic religious disputation. Here are the rabbis with those hats, and here are the Galochim. And everybody knows that the Ramban, for example, was forced by Raymond de Penaforte to participate in the great disputation against Pablo Cristiani, okay? And uh, the Ramban was the Ramban, but there are other people that didn't have such a great time, not that he did, and uh, it was really tough. And Raymond de Penaforte was, was a dedicated Catholic who set up two Catholic yeshivas, one to teach the priests uh, the Shas, the Talmud thoroughly, and the other one to learn the Koran thoroughly, and then from one should call out the missionaries for the Jews, the other one should come out the missionaries for the Muslims. They really had the zeal that they're going to do this sort of thing. And uh, let me tell you something. You can say whatever you want. They did go through all the Jewish writings. Gemara, Rashi, Tosis, Rishonim, Achronim, all that. It's pretty remarkable, I can tell you. If you, can go, you can go online now, and they, had, they have in Germany, they have the, uh, you can see it online, you know, um, uh, photos of the uh, old books I'm talking about, like the Pugia for Day, of Raymond Martini that I'll talk about, you see over there, he quotes not only Gemara, but Rabbeinu Bachaya and uh, Rabbeinu Tam and Tosus, and Abbas Yosef. I mean, you, you, you're just amazed. You understand? Because you think, well, they're all superficial and all the rest of it. And they're not. They, went, they, they were fired by zeal, and therefore they were looking for, for as he calls it, the diamond in the donkey. Any argument they can find made Judaism look bad. And they went pretty thoroughly through it. And in the... Uh, 1500s in Italy, you had a famous uh, P Peter uh, Galatinus, uh, who was an Italian who reworks uh, the works of the Puglia for day. So here's the original one. This is from Spain originally uh, by Raymond Martini, who was a Talmud of Raymond de Penaforte. I hope I'm not losing you. No, he's one of these real zealous uh, priests in the 1200s, in the time of the Ramban. And Puglia for day means the dagger of faith. So here's a Jew, and here's the dagger that's going to kill the Jew. He's wearing a tefillin over there, as you can see. Because I'm going to show you from the Talmud. From the Bavli, the Yushalmi, Mechilta, Sifra, see, and all those kind of books, and the Rambam and all the rest of it, I have the dagger. You understand? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drive a, a stake through the heart of the Jewish devil, you see? And here in the 1500s, now unfortunately you have what you call the printing press. And so Peter Galatinus, Galatino, is able to publish this repeatedly a number of times, and that means the average uh, Italian speaking uh, you know, uh, reader uh, can get all the uh, junk against Judaism. And in there, and uh, you, now you've got to have patience to read it. So only somebody's very zealous. So the Jews rely on the fact that the average priest, unless he's zealous, give him a little bit of vino and <laughs> you call it a day. But, the, uh, uh, but, but, if, but if the guy is, 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 is you know, strong, then it's a problem. And the problem, my friends, is most Jews don't know Judaism. Correct? The average, nobody here, you know, the average person doesn't know, you know, if they ask him a question from the Talmud or this and that and the other, how to answer those sorts of things. Um, now, one of the main uh, targets for the attack by these kinds of writers, of course, would be the silly Jewish anthropomorphisms as they see it, especially in the Agatha. 
Now, the Bible is full of anthropomorphisms where God is presented in one kind of human form or another. But the Gemara is, you know, the Talmud takes it to another level. Okay? Uh, the Agatha and the Talmud, oh my goodness, you know, God cries. He says, somebody gets hurt, my arm hurts. And, you know, he wakes up in the middle of the night screaming. And, oh, woe, woe am I that my children are exiled from the table. I can't do anything about me. To, a not, to an outsider, is beyond blasphemous. You see? And, and, and it's weird. That is an old trope from the Middle Ages to which a number of standard Jewish replies had evolved in the course of the Middle Ages. What are the, sta what are the, the standard Jewish uh, replies? Well, the classic one is like this. To hell with the Goyim. They don't understand anything. They're stupid and wicked. They have no shachas and kedusha, blah, blah, blah. In other words, just ignore it. Another one, this is, this is a not ineffective tactic for the masses. <laughs> Correct? Just to heck with them. All right? But it's not good for the intellectuals. It's not good for the Jewish intellectuals. Uh, so the Rambam, most famously, who lived in the 12th century, uh, the Rambam, uh, you know, as we all know, says, uh, Agatha is allegorical. You follow? There's a famous uh, passage here. Uh, I took the trouble to have it printed out. This is a translation, good translation, from uh, the Rambam's intro to Perchelik, as it's called, in which he discusses uh, the nature of the Agatha, of the, uh, the stories you find in the uh, Talmud, some of them which, which seem weird. And he classically says, do the, I won't read it for you, you can read it as, as, as we have it on the screen. He says, uh, very famously, that I, there's three types of people out there, A, B, and C. Some people think they're from, and therefore they take everything literally. So it said Rabbi Kiva jumped over the moon with a spoon, it happened. And even though it makes no sense, he says, even though I'll admit it makes no sense, but to them, being from means just take everything literally, and that's it. If the Torah says it, that's, that's the end. If it's in the Gemara, or in the Ein Yaakov, that's the end of the discussion. And then he says you have the second group, which say like this, uh, this is nuts, and the rabbis are crazy. These, I'm talking about Jews who say this. The Ramos talking about Jews. And he says, we are a bunch of weird religion. You know, the rabbis, we had a bunch of nuts. You know, they say Rabbi Kiva jumped over the moon with a spoon. Yes, and, 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 and to them, when they wrote it, they meant it. And so they were people who told legends and fables of the Brothers Grimm and all the rest of it. And, oh, what a, what a poor Jewish uh, group we are. Me, I'm different. I'm an MD. That's what Ramos says. He says, mostly you find this among doctors and, and astrologers and people like that, where they consider themselves very smart. And then the third group, which the Rambam very famously and typically says like this, he says, it's not a large group, my friends. Very few people get this right. Actually, it's a set of one. <laughs> I'm serious. He goes, look, the third group comprises so few by God that you can hardly call them a group, except in the sense that we call the son of species, even though it's one of a kind. <laughs> so for the mathematicians, he said, the third group gets it right, even though it's a lonely world out there, my friends, you know? And the third group gets it, Marshall Melissa. You know what I'm saying? In the Talmud, when they use Agatha, uh, sometimes they mean it literally, but when you see something that seems weird, that somebody jumped over the moon with a spoon, as I say, or something like that, or he drank an ocean, it's, 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 it wasn't meant to be taken literally. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's a mushal. It's an allegory to convey ideas. And he says over there, these individuals have a clear understanding of the greatness of the sages. Uh, they appreciate the excellence of their intellect as evidence in all their statements about concepts relating to absolute truth, which means you can't say Rabbi Kiva was nuts because I'll show you famous statements that he says that are very wise. You see? And so you see, Rabbi Kiva, whoever you want, Rabbi Tavron, they, they understood the difference between reality and non-reality. They had people of common sense at least, and beyond that, they have wisdom. So basically it's like this. If, if, a, if a dummy says, a hillbilly says one plus one is three, you say he doesn't know arithmetic. But if Albert Einstein says one plus three, then you have to ask the following question. What does he mean by that? Because I know he knows one plus one. You understand? So if you see Rabbi Kiva or somebody like that, 
saying something weird, you have to ask, since you know from other statements of his, that he's clearly was a smart person, then you ask yourself the question, so why did he say the moon ran off with a spoon? You say, what, what's the meaning of that? And then you'll say like this, the moon, I'll make it this way, the moon is reflected light. You understand? And many of us are not suns. We reflected light. Yes, and very few of us have our own greatness. But we're glad to get something off the... That's how we live. We don't come with any ideas of our own. We just read stuff in books and parrot them out. Therefore, we're all the moon. You know, something like that. Now, the point is that... Um, so this is, this is a, a classic uh, argument that Rambam and people like that made in the Middle Ages. These arguments allowed the Rambam, by the way, to contrast the philosophically sound non-corporeal elements of Judaism with the corporeal elements of Christianity. You get it? In other words, we wise Jews will say that the Torah itself understands God as a totally invisible creature and beyond, beyond, I mean literally, you know, beyond comprehension, all the rest of it. And all these stories about God are just mushels. You Christians, you believe that Jesus and Mary really got together and that there was immaculate conception and, uh, you know, three days later this happened and that happened and, oh my goodness, you really bite a bunch of baloney. You see? So therefore, he, he flips it. You get it? Now, the Ramam could do this because he didn't live among the Christians. You get it? Uh, so, it's always like that. Uh, but nevertheless, it, 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 it's a good argument. So, uh, he becomes, like they say, the poster boy for this kinds of uh, business. But I want to make the following point. The Rambam was preoccupied with anthropomorphic messages, not historical ones. He was not interested in historical details at all. If you know the Rambam is, he's a math and science guy, cold. That is what turns him on. A math problem, I mean this, a math problem, a science problem, a metaphysics problem, which to him was part of philosophy and, 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 and logic. Logic, that's a major turn on. You tell him like this, I, I, I heard a good song, <laughs> you know, a poem, a, a painting, that ain't the Rambam at all. I got no time for this, you understand? History. History, he writes there. Stories about old dead Arabs, who cares about that? You know, that's what he says, you know, the stupid Arab kings and all the rest of it. Why? Aren't you interested in the evolution of the caliphate from the Umayyad to Baza? Eh, you know, now you want to talk to me, you want to talk to me about a syllogism. Oh, now, now you're talking my language. So you got to understand that's who he was. Consequently, the Rambam doesn't offer anything useful for historical criticism. You get it? He offers useful guidance for people interested in problems of anthropomorphism and a metaphysics, if that's your bag. Um, when it comes to scientific issues, the Rambam, by the way, had no problem saying Chazal were wrong. It's also part of who he is. In the Moran of Uchem, God perplexed, there's a famous passage where there's a Gemara passage in, in Pesachim, which can be interpreted in, in different ways, but the Rambam interprets it to say that there was the Chachmei Umas Olam versus the Chachmei Yisrael, the uh, Jewish rabbis versus the Greek scientists, there's some argument about astronomy, and in a certain place, it says, Rabbi Yudanasi says, Nitzu chachmi chachmi Yisrael, which to the Rambam means like this. Rabbi Yudanasi was honest. He said, we were wrong, they were right. Get over it, you understand? Uh, meaning that he doesn't mind compartmentalizing. The Rambam doesn't mind compartmentalizing uh, the, your assessment of the sages and say they were the greatest people in this department, but not in math, perhaps, or whatever, astronomy, you know, or, or some other item like this. And at the end, it doesn't take away from who they are because we're interested in the Chazal as bearers of the Torah tradition. So if you want to know, you know, Arbavus Nazikin, or something like that, or if you want to know about God, they are the ones who have the tradition. But if they offer medical advice, or scientific advice, they would they do it according to the period of the time. Many people had trouble with that. And the Rambam himself got in the hot water, and he was the Rambam. You can imagine when people later 
are going to, 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 to do so. Um, but I'm just saying over here, the Rambam, theological issues mattered and not scientific and other issues. He's worried about, as I say, primarily, primarily anthropomorphisms. That's really what, 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 what uh, preoccupied him. Just as the Christians revive the 13th century anti-Jewish arguments, Jewish scholars in Italy in the 1400s revived the Maimonidean arguments, all in this new medium called the printed book, which obviously had to have a revolutionary effect on culture, because all of a sudden it's, a, it's, it's somewhat similar, I repeat, somewhat similar to the internet today, which, although you and I are living through this revolution, has revolutionized our lives. How many of us are old enough to remember when there was no <laughs> internet? You know, in other words, it's, a, it's, it's become so much part of there that it's, it's you know, who writes letters anymore? And uh, that's the way it was when you had a manuscript culture, and then it transfers little by little, but uh, clearly into the uh, printed book culture. So it is what it is. So there's a technological and social revolution represented by the printing press, obviously. There's a scholarly and intellectual uh, revolution also represented by the printing press. How so? The printers have to pick and choose manuscripts, which is a process of winnowing, which means, whether you like it or not, critically choosing. Every time you read a book that was published in the 1450s, 1600s, or even later, it was off a manuscript, because there weren't any books before. And so, let's say Greek, or Latin, or Italian, or any of that stuff, there are manuscripts around there. The printer, by definition, has to pick one. You can only pick one on the page. The printer is usually, if you know the Renaissance, is, is aware of several manuscripts. But he'll say, this first part seems real, but the second part's baloney. I'm just, I'm a, eclectically, I'm just going to take you know, this part of this manuscript and that part of that manuscript and so on and so forth. These are the kinds of things for the weirdos among us today, if you get like the Chevelle Rambon, you know, to use language you'll understand, or these sorts of things, where they have critical edition of text, you know, he'll say this is from manuscript A and this manuscript B, the printers obviously made whatever choices they made, sometimes more successfully, sometimes less successfully. But for the first time in history, you have this business that we know about anyway. First time in history, you have a process in which people are asking themselves the question, here's the Rajva, or is it? Right? Who, who copied this, and did they get it right? Here's the Ritva. Or if you prefer, here is uh, Justinian's Law. You understand? You know, is this the right Nusuch, or is it not the right Nusuch? Is it a printer error? The world is full of printer errors. I mean, uh, I'm copyist errors, uh, scribal errors. The world is full of scribal errors. Or do you not have spell check, you know? Uh, it, it's, it's part of life, you see? And uh, who decides it's part of life? The answer is the printer. They'll say, this is obviously a mistake. You get it? And, and that's what happens. I'm trying to say in the, in, in the Renaissance period and even afterwards, they didn't say, oh, let's give the reader the total you know, corpus of all the possible manuscripts. Nobody did like that. With the Bible, they did it as a famous a project, what they call the Polyglot Bible. All right. The, and that took 100 years, by the way. So the Polyglot Bible, new. You have all different nusos. But not for, uh, you know, Livy's uh, history of Roman or whatever, you know, something like that. So that's how it went. But I'm just trying to show you it's a time of change. There are the original text and the eclectic text, and just get used to it. This introduces, for the first time, a culture of critical attitude towards manuscripts and the written word in general. Is it accurate? Fake? Legendary? A little of both? This critical attitude toward documents of the past is the foundation of the modern scientific attitude. True or not? Of the modern scientific attitude, which is you don't take something just because it says it. You ask questions about it. It was quite new in Western culture, and it certainly was new in Jewish culture. 
A critical analysis means you don't take a face value. You try to check the facts as much as possible against other facts. If it's a scientific statement, try to empirically verify, which was really new in those days. After all, people said in the 1500s, Columbus has demonstrated the Earth was not flat. Copernicus had recently demonstrated the planets would go around the sun. The ancient teachings on these subjects have been proven wrong, despite the weight of church teaching. So that shows you that now all the orthodoxies, as they call it, are accurate. What about critical analysis in Judaism? What about checking the facts found in Sfarim? What about comparing what it says in the Torah and the Talmud? Or another classic safer, what it says in the religion of another culture or another religion? This was not done. It was not part of the from world. To a Jew, listen closely, Torah was not part of world culture. It was in a class of its own. It's not subject to historical comparisons. How can you compare the laws of the Torah with those of Hamarabi Hammurabi, or Egypt, or Greece, or Rome? The other laws started with human beings, so they evolved historically. The Torah didn't come from humans, so they cannot be compared with other systems. You get what I'm saying? This attitude is a core attitude of the Jewish culture. We are different. We're not part of history. We look like you guys, but we're different. You know, the, 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 that whole way of, of thinking. Now, uh, remember, to the Jew, the Talmud, not only the Chumash, and all of its literature is part of Torah Shabbat As literature, it cannot be compared to other literatures. Its authors, the Tanaim Bamram, superhumans, not can be compared to Solons and Justinians, the famous lawgivers of Greece and Rome. Uh, these are people who are outside. Asher Piham Shav, the Aminimim Shakar, they're notorious liars. Look what a Eisvarf Aristotle was in real life. Look what a bad guy played to How can you compare this with Rabbi Akiva or even Rabbi Kivager if you want, you know? Uh, it, 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 it's a totally different world. Uh, Harry Wilson, maybe that name means something to you, from Harvard, long ago, published his uh, famous dissertation in the, around 1920s. Uh, on Kresge, the, the, this is a real page turner, Kreska's critique on Aristotle, <laughs> okay? And uh, uh, in that, he says there that I was Ma'ayan in Chazne Kreska, who's a very famous uh, uh, and very hard, oh my God, very hard, medieval Jewish philosopher who goes very deeply into the 27 arguments of Aristotle that are presented in the Mernon Vuchim and in, in, in Aristotle's original works. It's impossible. And no, I, I tried. Anyway, it's, it's impossible. <laughs> No, I mean, it's very, it's, it's very hard. And the point's like this. So Wilson now did his dissertation, presenting this in English and, and explaining it within the context of everything. I mean, it's a, it's a tour de force. That's what got him a job at Harvard, even though he was Jewish. And uh, in there, he says at the beginning, he says, I'm approaching this text the way a yeshiva guy a approaches a text. Look what he says. The attitude towards text had its necessary component in what we call the Talmudic, hypothetical deductive method of text interpretation. Meaning, he said, that's what I'm going to do in my dissertation. Confronted with a statement on any subject, the Talmudic student will proceed to raise a bunch of questions before he satisfies himself as having understood the full meaning. If the statement is not clear enough, he'll say, what does the author intend to say here? If it's too obvious, then it's too plain. Why did he say it? If a statement of fact or a concrete instance, what underlying principle is involved? If it's a broad generalization, he'll want to know exactly how much of it is to include and if it's an exceptional general rule, he'll want to know exactly how much is there to exclude. He'll furthermore want to know all the circumstances on which a certain statement is true and what qualifications are permissible. Statements apparently contradictory to each other will be reconciled, thank you, by the discovery of a subtle distinction. And statements apparently irrelevant to each other will be subtly analyzed to their ultimate elements and shown to contain common underlying principle. The harmonization of apparent contradictions, interlinking of apparent irrelevancies, 
uh, are two characteristic features of the Talmudic method of text study, and similarly, every phenomenon about the text becomes a matter of investigation. Can you believe that you're up at 10.30 at night listening to this? Now, okay. Now, uh, my point is like this. That's not how you read a book usually, correct? That's not how you read a book. You read a book, I know there is, I know. You, you, you do it as you fall asleep. He says, you read a book like this, you know, fresh fish are sold here. Get it? John walked into the room. Shine. John walked into the room. Why did he walk in the room? The heck with it. He walked in the room. You know? <laughs> Get over it, you know. Julius Caesar conquered Gaul. Why? Hey, what did the conquer Gaul? <laughs> then I said, why was it Gaul? You know? And why did it was conquer? Uh, it's a different way. My point is, this whole idea bespeaks a self-contained culture, which is the Ishi world. It's a self-contained culture in which we have our way of doing things. And therefore, don't introduce extraneous matters from contemporary religion or other cultures or this sort of thing. I don't care what they... Yes, the Chazal lived in the time of the Greeks. Yes, they lived in the time of the Romans. So what? You get it? It's got nothing to do uh, with anything. I, I, I can't emphasize this enough. Now, the person we're talking about tonight, Azari Durasi, did not feel this way. Okay? So who was he? He was an Italian Jew of the 1500s. We don't know the exact year. 1510, 1576. That's, you know, the years they usually give. He was an Italiani and not Ashkenazi Sephard. So... Do remember that in Italy there are three types of Jewish communities. Um, there are the Roman Jews who've been there for a long, long time, and then in certain centuries some of these Roman Jews move to other cities. Correct? Uh, some of these Roman Jews will move north or in other places like that, and they're what they call the Italiani. They have their own minhag, they have their own shulchan aruch, their own davening, their own peyutim, their own customs. Uh, their shulchan aruch is called shabuli aleket. And, uh, and people like that in the, uh, in the Middle Ages. They have their traditions of what's allowed and what's not allowed on Shabbos, and they predate Rashi. I mean, in other words, don't go and make fun of them. You see? They are their own thing. Very small numbers. Very small. Then you have the large group that inhabited most of Italy before these guys left Rome, and that's Ashkenaz. You'd be surprised. Right? The Ashkenaz Jews moved from the German territories in the 1200s and the 1300s into North Italy, they all went into business, usually uh, loans, and, you know, a little banking and that sort of kind of thing. And they established communities in Padua and in Milano and all those little areas, you know, and, that, and, and that's your classical Jewish moneylender, Yiddish speaking for many centuries. The Sephardim obviously don't come till after 1492. Before 1492, they're in Spain. True. And so it's not what you often think. We often think Sephardim were there first, the Ashkenazi came later, like in America. It's not the way it is. In most places in Italy, I repeat, in most places in Italy, the Ashkenazi were there first, then the Italiani moved there, and later come the Sephardim. The Italiani moved there from Rome. Okay? Now, to make it more complicated, there are Ashkenazi shoals in Rome, and there's Sephardi shoals in Rome. I get it. And nowadays, it's a real mishmash, because you've got your Libyan and Iranian Jews that are taking over the scene, because the Italiani are so culturally weak, and blah, blah, blah. But the point is that here's three shoals, and uh, you know, uh, each one has a, this is a typical Italiani shoal with the gold and all the rest of it. Um, in Ponovich, that's Italiani, right? You know what I'm talking about? The big gold uh, uh, leafed Arn Kodesh and so forth. That's a very Italian sort of thing. The Sephardim have their own culture with the dark wood and all the rest of it. And Ashkenazim is Kaplop. Now, um, so here's a Jew from Italy. He's Italiani. He's there before the others. He's from an old family. As usual, all these guys claim I come from the Minha Domim, the Rossi family. We go back to Titus and all that. You know, eh? And then, um, and he lives all his life uh, in the only place that you can live, which is North Italy. 
as I told you before. Uh, the Jews are kicked out of uh, South Italy uh, pretty early on. Uh, the three better communities are the ones, let's go to the map. Well, well let's go back. Let's, oops, let's go back to the map. I'm sorry about that. Uh, here. He lives all of his life here, here, and here. I know these names don't necessarily mean a lot, but you've heard them. Mantua, Ferrara, Bologna. Uh, he's born in Mantua, as I'll explain sh shortly. Uh, he lives most of his life in Bologna. His later years, when he writes the book, is in Ferrara. I'm trying to show, notice they're all near each other. You get it? Except Italy, being Italy, has crazy borders. Now, let me just tell you something interesting before I proceed. And that is that, uh, look, here's Mantua, here's Verona. Well, on my trip, I see some people were in my trip. We went to Verona, we didn't get a chance to go to Mantua. These are two old, old communities, strong, long Jewish history. But this is the wrong place to live, and this is the right place to live. And the, I just want to make a point. And the reason it's the right place to live is Verona early on is conquered by Venice. So it's part of the Republic of Venice. The Venetians are famous for being sneaky and intrigue and all the rest of it, and their foreign policy was overwhelmingly successful. So for 500 years, with a single exception, for 500 years, no foreign army ever invaded Venetian territory. They, the, the, the exception was the Pope Julius, we'll see in a minute. But uh, other than that, they didn't. So if you're in Verona, it's peace and quiet. Yes, there's a ghetto. Yes, the Jews have to pay three times the taxes of everybody else. I'm not saying it's perfect at all. But the Jews feel very safe and very happy to be in Verona. Many times in Jewish history, the people from Mantua will run away and try to find refuge in Verona. It'll never happen that the people from Verona run away to find refuge in Mantua. Because Mantua will be part of the Duchy of Milan eventually, and that'll be ruled by the, you know, the, the French, and then the Spanish, and the Austrians, and this, and that, and the other. It'll be one invasion after another. So the, actually, the geography does kind of matter if you're Jewish over here, as you'll, as, as you'll see in a second. So uh, he lives in, in Mantua, Bologna, Ferrara. Uh, this is for Mantua. It's a little town. It was a big Mokum Torah in the 15th century. 1,500 people total, which by a Jewish community is a lot, but not by us today. And a world-class yeshiva where his father had learned. Uh, this is just wonderful. If you want to know who is the Rosh Hashiva in this small community in Mantua, Maharik. Maybe you've heard of it. Major person. But also, Rabbi Yehuda Messer Leon, which is not so famous. Uh, the difference is, between the two of them is, Maharik, Yosef Kolon, very big posik, he represents Torah only, right wing. Yehuda Messer Leon is YU. He, had, uh, he was, Messer Leon is, is a title that equal to a PhD, Messer, in Saint Maestro. And uh, he had significant degrees from um, Bologna and from uh, some other university over there. The Holy Roman Emperor gave him uh, high degree. So here's a guy who's a big time, he's Rosh Hashiva. Right, he's a Rosh Hashiva, and yet at the same time, he has significant uh, secular education, but he compartmentalizes, as I said before. Um, if you want to know who the most famous student coming out of Yeshiva this time, very typical of this kind of culture, Bartanura. I'm not talking about the wine. He said, right? <laughs> the, the, uh, the famous guy, what, what does he do? He takes the Mishnahis and turns it into an open book. Right? Very Italian. Correct? And he does it by combining the Rambam and the, and the, and the Rosh, if you know how it works, and, and Rashi. So in other words, it's a very systematic sort of way of opening up the, the, the thing, very Italian. Uh, there is, of course, in Mantua and everywhere else, a Sephardi invasion after 1492. So um, this is an environment where this Azari de Rossi grows up, which is intellectually exciting. Okay? Uh, Mantua does not have the mazel of Venetia, as I told you before, they get invaded. Um, and at some point, uh, our, our hero, Zari de Rossi, uh, moves f 
It's nearby Bologna, another important Jewish community, but it's in the Papal States. Now, um, we don't know why, but there were a lot of invasions back and forth. I'm about to show you um, something of significance for the Jews, because Bologna didn't, had been seized by other rulers, and the Jews had it good then. And then it was captured uh, by the Pope, uh, who led the army, Julius II. He was the warrior Pope, as you'll see in a moment. And, uh, and, when, they, and when that happened, then it got very tricky uh, for the Jews. So when you're going to see this uh, Hollywood production over here of two, three minutes, uh, in which from the agony and ecstasy, they, you see the, the, the Pope, papal forces capturing Bologna in the early 1500s. Uh, it's pretty accurate, by the way, except they don't show the massacres. Uh, there are Jews in the city, and you're not going to see them in a Hollywood movie. If you're Jewish, what are you doing when all these armies are coming in and running back and forth? And uh, for Zari de Ross, this is going to be the question. This, this is the regime under which he'll live. The Rosh Hashiva and the chief rabbi in Bologna during these years, the Sforno. All right, you get the idea. Now, uh, <laughs> next time you look at the Sforno in this week's Parsha, this happened on a Saturday, by the way, the seizure by Pope Julius. He had a big statue of himself made over there. Uh, when the town knocked the statue down, he killed like half the town. Uh, but not the Jews, because he had a, a good Jewish dentist. This is true. He had a good Jewish dentist and a good Jewish doctor. He figured leave the Jews alone. And, uh, this, and the Jews in Bologna write about all this. And therefore, it can make sense that a guy like Azaria de Rossi, as long as the Pope is like Julius or Leo X or Clement, these guys in the first half of the 1500s, no, you know, it's not so bad. Um, later in life, you get those other popes that I talked to you about. And then the consequences of this conquest will be uh, not so, uh, so, so much fun. Um, as I said, uh, you know, this was a period of the Sforno and others. The mid-century popes will be worse by the early 1560s. Um, the books are raided. You know, the Catholic Church takes the books away. Um, they're destroyed. Jews are starting to be expelled. By 1569, the Jews are kicked out of uh, Bologna. You can't live there. Azari de Rossi therefore moves to Ferrara, which is nearby. And uh, we don't know how he made a living, how he supported his wife and daughters. But he did. You know, probably was a lender, but we don't know. Uh, and here's a guy we know is reading, reading, reading day and night. And the reason we know this is because, um, and I don't have it in front of me, but one of the most famous physicians of the 1500s, Amatus Lusitanus, which means Amato of Portugal. That is to say, he's Murano. You get it? So, uh, and he's a guy who's always one step ahead of the Inquisition. He's a very celebrated physician, and half the time he has to pretend to be Christian and all the rest of it. Typical situation a Portuguese Jew, he runs away to Italy, and then when eventually, in the course of his career, when things get too hot in Italy, he moves to Turkey. And when Turkey is able to come out totally out of the closet, totally. You understand? Until then, you have to go to Shulam Saturday and church on Sunday. You know, it's a hard life. And he's a very famous a physician, like I say, you can look it up. He's the first guy that started the stuff with the circulation of blood that we associate with Harvey. Obviously, Harvey must have brought it to its fullest uh, you know, the understanding. But he was a, in his day, he was a cutting-edge physician. And I mean that in a good sense. <laughs> that might be the wrong word to use. Uh, but anyway, and he wrote up a bunch of... He wrote up... I saw this years ago. I wasn't able to get this for you in time. I went to Hopkins. They didn't have it. Uh, Dr. Harry Friedwald. If that means anything. Uh, from old Baltimore was a famous eye doctor over here from the Chizik Moon and the Sheriff of Israel long ago. And uh, uh, he was a world-famous uh, eye doctor, he and his father. And he was, uh, you know, with the old, the, the, this is the best type of balabas once upon a time, literally 100 years ago. And he, uh, I, I'll say it again, he was, he was um, a member of the Chizik Moon and of the Sheriff of Israel. His father 
helped uh, found the Sheriff of Israel, but also where the family ran the, the Chesed Gamuna. And uh, he used to write up all these medical cases, anything involving Jews. And he found in some manuscript or someplace that Amazdus Lusitanus was in Ferrara, and he treated a guy named Azariah de Rossi. And he describes in a whole medical thing about it. He said the guy's emaciated. He reads too much late at night by the candle. It's ruining his eyesight and killing his health. He looks like a cadaver, all the rest of it. But I put him on a four-month course of diet and exercise and all that kind of stuff. And he says, I took him a four-month course. from a, This is what he writes. From a cadaver to a Hercules. Okay? <laughs> if I say so myself. <laughs> and here's my card. No, but I'm just... Uh, no, but, but, but all, all joking aside, he was a famous person. So you, meanwhile, this would not be surprising because Azariah de Rossi is a Jewish intellectual. You get it? He makes a living probably in money lending or something like that, but that's not where his real heart is. His real heart is um, intellectual acquisition. Torah and secular. He knows shots and post game, cold, yes, because he's an Italian Jew and they just read, read up a lot from early age. He was trained in a systematic way and he did do all that sort of thing. And in his writings, you can find Tosus and Rishonim and you know, all, all, the, whole, the whole business and the Zohar and all the rest of it. But also, in addition to that, you'll find every secular book that was ever written, every Christian book that was ever written, he's read. Okay? And that's very typical of the Renaissance in which erudition is prized above all else. I would say erudition is prized above original thought. Okay? Not that he doesn't have original thought, but I'm just saying that's the golden age, 1500s. If you read a lot of books, ooh, that, that automatically means that you're smart. Now, uh, so again, it's a, it's, a, it's a bookworm in, in all the different, uh, you know, uh, classics and all that kind of stuff. A very erudite individual, what can I tell you? This guy turns out to be not so comfortable with compartmentalization. Such is not his mental makeup, right? He's not so easy, the type of person like this. This is what I learn in my Jewish stuff, and this is what I learn in, quote, unquote, my Gaisha stuff. But he, on the contrary, what it says over here, let's match it up with what it says over here. More like Torah Mata, I guess you would say. Uh, he believes that the Jewish people live outside of the Geisha history, and then again he doesn't. <laughs> you see? His vast reading in Gentile literature makes him aware of and interested in issues that are beyond the mental universe of most fellow Jews. For example, what about the writings from the Second Temple era? I mean, what's exactly the shot over there? I mean, uh, the Gemara never mentions any of these, like Josephus, we talked about last time, right? Uh, here, writings by fellow Jews who seem to have been religious conforming Jews, but there's barely a mention of them in the Gemara in Chazal. Why is that? What's the shot? Did Chazal know about them and deliberately ignore them? In which case, the books are objectionable for some reason, though by ignoring them, we don't know what the reason is. Or were Chazal just yeshivish, like nowadays, and so culturally insular that they simply were unaware of these books or uninterested in what they had to say out of an obscurantist and an unsophisticated cultural mindset, in which case they're much less impressive The Chazal. What's the story? What's going on? Nobody talks like this in the Jewish world, the firm world. Nobody writes like this in the firm world. What's with all the stuff that's out there? The Gaim, no, we don't know that. Uh, the Apocrypha, the Pseudepigrapha. What's with Philo of Alexandria who writes all these books at that time? The Dead Sea Scrolls, which he knows about, meaning the, from Josephus' description. And Josephus himself, and Yosephon. In his time, they thought Yosephon was Josephus wrote a, a Hebrew edition for his Hebrew readers, you understand? Well, right, it's the 16th century. The point is that he's just issue, he has a historical consciousness which regular Jews don't have either out of being just simple from Jews or out of deliberate compartmentalization. And so it's very interesting. The very question itself bespeaks this 
historical sensibility. But he moved beyond the stage of weirdo when he decided, in his, in, in, when he was 50 years old, in his 50s, to publish these matters in a book and in the Hebrew language. Oy, oy, oy. Okay? Now, what shook him into this? The answer is one of the greatest earthquakes in history. Okay? Uh, he lived in Ferrara in 1570 during the famous, famous earthquake of Ferrara. And uh, where do I have it over here? It, 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 on, on Google, there's a whole article called The Famous Ferrara Earthquake of 1570. You know, it's gone down in history, which lasted, uh, I mean, you, you, you'd be shocked. It lasted for years. Okay? In other words, the aftershocks went on for a long time and were very big over there. This is the area of Ferrara. When I was in Italy with my group, we, do you remember this? We were in Venice on Shabbos and heard the bed shake, and it was an earthquake of Bologna. So, no, these kind of things happen over there. Um, the, the, the place where I went crazy, and if you were there at that time, you probably saw the Sodom and Amora, you know, they're being, uh, no, I'm serious, you know, and being destroyed. And uh, I'm looking for the notes they have on here. They have all this kind of, uh, you know, it, it, the effects were just uh, huge. The seismic wave kept going on for four years, but the worst was over after six months. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, think, think what I said. No, it's every day another building is collapsing. You get what I'm saying? They thought it's the wrath of God. Uh, one month after the earthquake, a powerful new shock hit the city in December 5th, 1570. This time the battered the Palazzo, this and this church, and then all these places were spared. A new shock in January 12, 1571 damaged the Mo Palazzo Montecoccoli. Oh my goodness, you know, all over the place. Um, and, it, it, and it shook. People were scared by the disaster. One third of the population left the city for good. City jails collapsed. And the prisoner escaped the rubble, which led to a crime spree in the city and countryside. Sounds like Baltimore. You understand? Okay. Earthquake lights were seen above the city on November 15th. Earthquake lights. I don't even know what that is. And the night before the quake, flames were reported to come out of the ground and raise into the air. Probably small pockets of natural gas set free by cracks in the dust. Okay. But if I'm living there and I see the devil coming out of the ground... You know, coming home from chakras, I was like, whoa, what did we do? You know, the earthquake struck at dawn, three strong shocks at the city in the first day, and so on and so on and so forth. You know, I mean, they, we, they, this was uh, very closely uh, recorded. Now, listen to this. Uh, there's no such thing as a disaster out of which somebody cannot make hay. And the Pope uses this to attack the pro-Jewish policies of the Duke. You understand? The Duke asked the Pope Pius for help. Uh, Hercules, uh, Alonso, Alfonso, at least a public blessing to the city. He got nothing except a firm reprimand for not having persecuted the city's Jews well enough. Therefore, well-deserving God wrath to the city. That's a nice guy, right? Yeah. Alfonso's answer was prompt, pointing out the evident natural cause of the disaster and discharging any allegation against blaming the Jews. Here's where I'm going. If you're Jewish and you're living in the early 1570s, you want to emphasize the scientific side of things, don't you? <laughs> Get what I'm saying? No, don't, no, I'm serious. Don't be surprised if this is going to make a guy who's anyway a rationalist, all the rest of it, say, you know, uh, the Pope's rebuttal was a blunt political maneuver meant to undermine Alfonso's authority by exploiting discontented minorities. Since the city administration tolerated the presence of the assassins of Jesus, God was justifiably angry toward the whole city. Full blame is put in the head of the, of the Duke and none of the Jews, etc., 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 right? Along with this Pope's stern letter, emissaries from the Capuchin monks were sent from Bologna 
in order to scare the population and turn against the duke, the friars took some decomposing corpses from the rubble, brought them in procession, claiming God was going to sink the city to hell if the people refused to drive the duke away. Oh my goodness, back and forth and forth and back. So uh, you can see it's quite a time to uh, live in. Now, uh, what happens over here? Um, since the Pope says it's called science, you jerk, you know, uh, I said it wrong, the Duke says it's called science, so the Catholic Church is running around thinking it's, it's, it's act of God. Azari de Rossi is moved to consider the earthquake, which he writes up in Hebrew. That comes the first part of his book. A whole famous long description of the earthquake in Hebrew, uh, in which obviously he wants to side with the Duke. And what does that mean? Of course God runs the Teva, you know, ultimately, but the Teva runs on its own. You see, everything comes from God, but there's also nature and science. You blame it on geology, don't blame it on God. Or can you? You know, this is a tricky business. Um, a couple years ago, we had the Haiti earthquake. I remember Heshi Weiner from the OU said, like, is this, is this, earthquakes have their own logic, you know, don't blame it on God. You follow? No, there's this natural tendency. It was in Jewish times. You have this natural tendency to ascribe these sorts of things. Um, this started Azaria writing about things that interested him, first about earthquakes and then about history questions. So when he was running away from the earthquake across the river, he met this non-Jewish fellow, and the guy asked him, he said, what's the Jewish opinion about the letter of Aristeus? The letter of Aristeus is a part of what we call the pseudepigrapha, which means it's an account of how they translated the Torah into, into Greek. Now, the Gemara has a famous story I'm sure many are familiar with, which is Ptolemy. Ptolemy II, the king of Egypt, took the rabbis and put them in, seven, in, in 70 different rooms, trying to mess them up, and miraculously it didn't work out that way. They even were mechavan to the same choices. We all know that story. That's version one. Then there's a totally separate version uh, in Greek, uh, purporting to be by a Gentile official of the Egyptian court, which says, Dear Aristeus, since you, uh, the letter of Philocrates to Aristeus, so Philocrates says, I just want you to know the king the other day decided he wanted to add the library, the, the book of the Jews to the library. He sent me the head of an emissary, an embassy to Jerusalem, and he describes visiting Yerushalayim, and he describes how the base of, it's fascinating, and he describes how the base of Migdus runs, and he runs into Kongadol, and they conduct very courteous negotiations, and he gives him a present, he gives him a present, and the end is they persuade the rabbis to come down to Egypt, and they go to pages and pages and pages where the king entertains them at a banquet, and the banquet is full of wise philosophical sayings. It's a symposium, it's sort of like what the Seder originally was. And that is, you know, Eza Chacham, Eza Gibor, I mean, Eza Ashir. Who do you Jews consider wise? What is the ugliest of the animals? What is the wisest of the this? You know, those kind of, you know, w Greek wisdom sorts of things. And the rabbis, of course, knock a, a home run at each one. And then when it's all over, then they say like this they, the king said, oh, very nice. And then they retire to an island and they write up the whole thing and everybody's happy. So, uh, the answer is, Chazal never heard of this. No, you don't get a bit of this anywhere. In the, it's not from religion whatsoever. And so he's, Azariah said, like this, I think Jews ought to know about this. this is, he, as far as he knows, it's a guy writing in the glory of Judaism. And so he translates that, a letter of Aristides. It took him 20 days. And so now he has the makings of a book. He has the, descri descri uh, the description of the uh, earthquake in Ferrara. He has the letter of Aristeus. And then he decides, more controversially, to put in his 60 essays. Again, again, the 60 essays. What are 60 essays? Um, history questions, okay? It's a fat book, this is in English, right? It's a, it's a fat book. And by the way, you know, it's all words. <laughs> no pictures, okay? <laughs> so uh, the vast majority of it is the 60 essays. You understand? And uh, now I'm going somewhere with this. The, 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 the point, he, he has this consideration of Philo, 
And who exactly is this guy Philo was here in the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all that kind of stuff? Because I'll never write about him. But, you know, uh, some of the things Philo says about halacha are the same thing you find in the Talmud, and some things are different. Does that mean he was from? Does that mean he was not from? Dr. Belkin later on used to write dissertations about this. Uh, what's the story with Josephus? And why did Josephus write another version as he understood it called Yosephon? And why did he leave things in and one and out the other? Then he has a preoccupation with the big day kahuna, of all things. He's got a couple of chapters where he talks about the exact nature of the priestly vestments. One thing led to the other, and he began to write about historical issues that bothered him in relation to the Gemara. Now, I'm not going to go through 60 things tonight. Among these, the two, I'll, go, I'll go right to the core. The two trickiest subjects were Agathas that seemed to be historically inaccurate. That's number one. And number two, the traditional chronology of the Chazal. What do you do when the Gemara tells a story that seems to be untrue based on what we know from Gaish history? That's the question. What about, most famously, Titus and the bug that went up the nose? Everybody, I'm sure, knows the story that after the base of was destroyed, it's in the Talmud and the Medrash and a couple places like that. It says that Titus mocked God and he said, I, can take, I, I, I burned your temple down. And God says, oh, a tiniest creature will mess you up. And a bug went up his nose and uh, stayed there, a bug, right? A, a, a gnat. And grew and grew and grew, and, by the, and, and it never left him. And for the rest of his life, Titus lived in torment. There's a whole description about it. You know, I won't go into all the stories. Uh, torment, and eventually killed him. And when he died from it years later, after many years of excruciating torment, uh, they, opened, they did autopsy, Sigmar says, and they opened it up and they found a bird with iron uh, fingers, you know, uh, uh, claws. They ripped him up, and it was just amazing. And here's this other saying, huh? Uh, Titus was a historical character. We got all these Roman writers that write about, you know, I mean, he, he's not an unknown guy. Uh, there are plenty of people around in his reign, and there are plenty of historians, if you want, or chroniclers from the Roman times to write about the life and death of Titus. He died from a certain plague. There are those who tie now his brother, poisoned him. Very possible if you know the Romans. That's a different thing. But come on, if there was a bug in the thing, it would have... It would, they would have, somebody would have written about all this. I mean, you're telling me it's a grand conspiracy of silence. This is the sort of thing that, that bothers Isaiah de Rossi. You understand? It's the kind of question that nobody ever brought up before. Rashi and Tosis, oh, writing in the, in the 1000s, the 1100s, aren't interested in these questions at all. What's bothering Tosis is only the question like this. How can it be that the animal scratched away in his head? A trefa is only supposed to live 12 months. That's the definition of a trefa. Here we have somebody from the Badakashu. And, you know, and therefore... <laughs> And therefore, if it plucked the crumb, neck of a crumb you know, if it, if, it, if it had a hole in the in the brain, then Titus shouldn't have lived on for years and years and years. And you know, so and what I mean to say is like this: Rashi and Tosis aren't interested in the other question. They they treat the text as is. You get it? Um, but as I read Rashi, he's like this: What is this, Titus? As far as we can tell, this, I'm telling you what he writes. As far as we can tell, he didn't die from all this. So why would they have a story like this? Must mean they made it up. You know what he said? It must be they made it up. Why would they make up a story like this? To convey to the masses the idea that he got his just desserts in the end. I know how he died. He died 12 years. He was Taka Young when he died. And uh, don't think that he uh, got away with it. Uh, and indifference is a vivid way of telling. You can definitely understand why a lot of people would be ticked off but with that approach. But that's very typical of the way he writes. And he always says like this. You know, I think it's a myth. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. He said, you know, he said like this. He said, I'm just giving it my, 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 my best shot. And uh, well, well I'll, I'll come back to this before I'm done. The other biggest and even more controversial problem, I guess you might say, with the chronology, okay? And here, you run into the problem that according to Chazal, there are three kings of Persia, right? Maybe four, but, you know, basically three kings of Persia. And, you know, and, and uh, from Cyrus and Achishverosh all together, uh, Achishverosh had 14 years, Cyrus, I forget, like five or some years, 
you know, uh, and the guy after him, it doesn't say clear. Altogether, if I remember correctly, altogether about 50 years. Okay? And then comes Alexander the Great and the overthrow of the Persian Empire, and you move on. The problem is, that's, that's what the Seder Olam says. The Seder Olam is the official chronology book of the Gemara. That's the Gemara quote, Tanar Abonin. Gemara quotes it all the time. Okay? According to the regular historians, by which I mean the Greeks, because there are no regular historians in ancient times. So you have people like Herodotus and Thucydides and people like that, especially Herodotus and others. The Persians didn't leave a whole lot of records. I just want you to know. He says, according to them, there are 10 kings. There's this, look at now. Whoa. It's not 50 years. It's uh, you know, almost 200 years, whatever, more. Right? What's this, uh, 220 years? It's a, it's a long time. And I mean, we have dates and stuff about all of them. Uh, I'll give you an example. Xerxes is the Battle of Thermopylae and the 300 Spartans and the invasion of Athens and the defeat by, by, by the Greeks at, the, at, at Salamis. I mean, you've heard of some of these things in school. Um, there are extensive discussions about Greek wars and stuff like that with these kings as they go down the line. You understand? Uh, Darius III, who's killed, um, killed in the wars against Alexander the Great, very famous. So basically, Zayda Ross saying, what's going on over here? It's like telling me like this. There was George Washington, there was John Adams, there was Thomas Jefferson, and then there was Kennedy. He said, what about all the guys in the middle? It didn't exist. But we have all this kind of, it didn't exist. You get what I'm saying? It's, it's, a, it's a problem. And so, uh, so what do you do with all this? So Isaiah de Rossi is the first guy to say like this, we're wrong, they're right, get over it. Just like the Rambam, no, he did what the Rambams did in science. He applies to history, okay? Now, by the way, it's a problem, and there are people to this day trying to write books all the time to, 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 to forem for this. Uh, here's a guy from YU, I don't know him, from Teaneck. We just did a study of it, Jewish history and conflict, the study of the major discrepancy between rabbinic and conventional chronology. And he did, this is really cute. You see all the writers that ever come since then, up to and including Art Scroll, and what, do they, do they uh, fudge it? Uh, do they go over it? Do they ignore it? Do they talk about it? Uh, who says we're right and they're wrong? Who says they're right and we're wrong? You know, and all the rest of who, who says both are right? Who says neither are right? Here's a book I just picked up in Shopsies uh, two, three weeks ago. The challenge, I, I haven't even read it yet. The challenge of Jewish history, the Bible, the Greeks, and the missing 168 years, by somebody named Alexander Hull, who I think is a yeshiva guy in Israel, or something like this. And, and, and you know, just from the little I skimmed through it, he went deep into the sources. And I'm, I'm serious about it. Those people to this day are trying to grapple. Everybody's a holy grail. If you could forever for this kasha, whoa, that would be pretty good. Now, I just want you to know, the art scroll, you should notice, in this book that they published many years ago in the 80s, I think. Hold on. Uh, from Rabbi Goldworm, if anybody remembers him, Olva Shalom. It was a big time, and he, he knew a lot of secular things as well. He's a serious guy. has a two-page business at the end of the book called The Traditional J Jewish Chronology, in which he discusses this gap. No, he doesn't hide from it, except he says, we're right and they're wrong. And, 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 he, and he makes an argument for it. I'm just uh, t telling you that. He wants to say over here, Zayi de Rossi was a from guy, and he decided with the from. That's not true. But, uh, you know, basically, he does, I mean, to, to the credit, you know, they, present, they present the issue. Rabbi Schwab, of all people, very famously said, uh, I'll say again, he speculated, he said, I guess I'm guessing. You know, I'm just suggesting, I'm guessing. In, the, uh, in, in 1962, in the Jubilee volume for Rabbi Breuer, Rabbi Schwab was, as you know, rabbi in Baltimore before he went to uh, Washington Heights. And when he was in Baltimore, I'm talking about the 40s and 50s, he used to deal with a lot of Hopkins students and people like that. And I've asked, people must have brought this stuff up. You understand? 
and being, uh, you know, he, he's, uh, so he has a whole uh, discussion of it in which you won't believe this. He concludes at the end, uh, they're right and we're wrong, but there's a reason. Okay, the Chazal on purpose uh, fudged it because of something he says in the book of Daniel. Uh, now, if you take that, and he says like this, he says, I don't know, maybe I'm right, I'm just, this is a guess. You know, that's what he writes in the, in the essay. If you take that point of view, then you don't have to worry about all this kind of thing. Then you're saying, okay, you know, we're wrong, but it's, it's deliberate. By the way, if it's true, this is not the year 5775. It's more like, what, it's closer to 6,000, isn't it? <laughs> it's it's uh, more like 50, 59. <laughs> and it's not 75. <laughs> Kiss it goodbye, baby, you know? Uh, we're getting ready for the big. But you want to know something? Look at the ISIS. I mean, <laughs> I hope Rabbi Schwab is wrong, you know what I mean? But, uh, but, 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 but who knows? All I'm telling you is that Azariah de Rossi said like this, get over it. Now, um, Azariah said like this, look, I'm just analyzing what's out there, don't shoot me. I'm laying it out there. I didn't invent the, the list of 10 Persian kings, you know? I didn't invent the Peloponnesian Wars and, and all the stuff that happened in the 5th century BC. You know, don't shoot me, Okay. What he was saying, and this in the Renaissance, was that the truths of historical analysis trump the truths of tradition. That Western discourse trumps Jewish discourse. Of course, he always says, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. This is just the fruits of my reason. That's his way of, of always backing out of it. Well, the book came out in the 1570s in Mantua, and all hell broke loose. Italian rabbis divided into two types. One group criticized specific points in his writing, accusing him of being wrong on certain facts and analysis. That's what we call a book review. There's nothing wrong with that. Agree? That's, the, you know, that's uh, every scholar in the world uh, actually should welcome that. Um, the other larger group accused him of kfira, of being a kaifer, an unbeliever, and a heretic. Okay? The whole approach is heretical. This is not what we do. Right? This is the Jewish religion. I don't know who you are. And what was particularly disturbing is Number one, he's a from guy. Number two, he's a Talmud Chacham. He was a member of the Jewish elite class. You understand? He wasn't an alienated Jew who had nothing. He was a member of the community, you know, like we say, he's a Balkore or something. You know, he's, a, he's, a, he's a, a central figure in Mantua, in Bologna, in Ferrara. Um, he always had been known for being like that, but it's a different story, you know, talking in the tea on a Tuesday night with a friend just shooting the bull and speculating on that and putting it out that this is what I think is the uh, truth, okay? So the, lar the larger group want to put him in harem. And uh, Azariah acted surprised. Now, he couldn't have really been surprised. Or maybe he was. It was just dumb. But I don't, I don't think so. Uh, this is not a dumb person we're talking about over here. I think he viewed himself, now I'm just sharing my opinion. I think he viewed himself as being on the left of the spectrum of acceptable opinion and not beyond the pale, okay? There is something of an argument for this, but it's a very tricky argument. Uh, the Jewish religion covers a lot of people. And there are people here, here, and here. And we have never been a people who have insisted or been able to insist, maybe until recently, that you have to have one specific ashkafa. But rather, the idea has always been that there's something of a range out there, left-wingers, right-wingers, as long as you're within the range and you observe the mitzvahs, you're part of the club. You understand? So I'm, I'm going to use terms that I don't really mean. Uh, it's Lakewood and YU, you know, just not that that's a real thing, but you know, you, that, that kind of general idea. And you say, this one's a little more modern. This show, oh, it's very much like this. That show is very like it. But they're all orthodox shows, you understand? This was um, a well-known 
concept throughout the medieval Jewish history. And uh, I'll tell you the positive side of it, uh, not the negative. I'll tell you the positive side of it. And that is, that way people have issues with this and that and the other can feel this is a peerage that speaks to me. A guy say, when I read Rashi and the Chumash, it drives me crazy. When I read the Ralbog, who's all the way out in left field. So I see, okay, I feel valid. You know, somebody else holds like me. So if they say, the Billum's donkey talk. It's hard for me to accept Billum's donkey talk. But I see that the Ralbog or somebody else says it's just a marshal. Oh, good. Maybe he's right. Maybe he's wrong. Maybe I wasn't there, right? Maybe it happened. Maybe it didn't happen. But I feel good that somebody else holds like this. Now, the person right next to him, Right? In the same show, throughout history, it's like this. That's Kfira, the Rabbi was crazy, you know, it's not true, Bill and Tunky spoke, anybody who says that. And, and, and it's called a Jewish conversation. <laughs> right? It's, it's kiddish after a show. Do you understand? No, man, man, but this really is true. In Spain, in Provence, certainly in Italy, sometimes among the Sephardim when they had the intellectual, you know, this, this conversation we'll have over there. The masses are not really part of that conversation. You get what I'm saying? It's a highly elitist Mandarin sort of social phenomenon in which the th we three people in Shul, we four people, the only everybody else, eh, you know, but we know, the, and you really believe this, and, the, and, the, and one will say, how can you say no? I'm sure, and the other will say this, and, and, you know, and, we, and we agree to disagree, and then we bench. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then, and, and then, we, and then, then we go on, and something like that. That's a, but that's one thing. Putting it in a book and say this is, you know, this is the Torah's Moshe, so to speak, or at least my what I think is a different story. So he felt clearly that what he's he's totally aware that he's on the left wing of um, of the spectrum. He has complete contempt for the masses, obviously, because he's for crying out loud, he's a 16th century Jewish intellectual, you know. Um, so he doesn't have anything. But what I just said fluctuates with time and space, correct? The conversation I had might happen in this place and might happen in that place. It's not going to happen in Mayasharim in 1975. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's not going to happen in Punavish based Medrash in, 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 in 2000, you know? It will happen in another show. You, you, you follow what I'm saying? In other words, there are places where this sort of thing has happened, places where it happened. It wouldn't happen with Samson Raphael Hirsch, as we'll see. It would absolutely happen with Israel Hilsheimer, just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. Um, in Italy, where he grew up in Mantua, the left-wing Rosh Hashiva, Judah Messer Leon, put a cherem on the Rabag back in the 1470s. And this is funny. That's, that's YU declaring YCT trafe. You get what I'm saying? You know, that, 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 no, that, 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 that's what it was. You follow? Because even there, there's a wonderful uh, tape, maybe some of you heard it, Rabbi Ruderman being interviewed by the Chavitz Chaim guys. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody familiar with this? And uh, there's one. <laughs> anyway, uh, some Chavitz Chaim guys talk, had conversation in English you know, he's trying to talk to them in English, you know, in his accent. And they're saying, like, and they said all kinds of things, some which were smart, some which were not. And one of the things they said is, like, what's with the uh, Rambam and the Mordevuchim, these not studying Yeshiva and the Rosh Yeshiva, Rabbi Rudim is like this, you have to know uh, what he means. Uh, you know, the Rambam is good, but you have to understand what he means. And what about, they say like this, the Kuzri, oh, Vada, you know. And what about Chazne Kresses? He's good, you have to understand. What about the Ralbag? The Ralbag is nicht good. <laughs> Right? So that's his thing. But I can tell you right now, the Rabbug is, I'm just off the top of my head, Rabbug is in the Mikras Gadolas. You see what I'm saying? They published the most Rabbug. I'm just trying to show you that there are 
outliers on the right, outliers on the left. And Azari Zabrasi wanted to say like this, I'm part of the club, I just, I just occupy the left, because that, that's where my research leads me. Uh, but to Italian Jews, it's, uh, you know, the, the Azari is now the new Rabag, so to speak. Now, like Steinsaltz, uh, Azari Zabrasi did not win a war. That's not who he was. And so he published a book, he said, I'm apologizing, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, and if I offended anybody, I'm shutting up. Was this tongue-in-cheek? I mean, it had to be, you understand? He issues a new edition of the book, like Stalin's Encyclopedia, get it? Notice the, the pages are uh, changed, you know what I mean? They tore the, the, the parts out over there, so don't shoot me. It reminds me very much similarly what happened recently with this. Look at this, the new improved edition. <laughs> Everybody know, you know what I'm talking about? I think, by the way, Rabbi Yaakov's uh, yard set is this week. He says, uh, uh, first they came out with the biography of Yaakov Kamenetsky from his, grand, from his son, uh, and it was too unacceptable. So then he said, like okay, they published another one, the first edition, uh, I said this in Shul today, I'll never forgive myself, I'm still kicking myself. I went to Shabsi's, when the first book came out, and I saw it, I said, eh, I'm not going to waste my time with that. I could be a millionaire. <laughs> uh, so, so he issues a new edition and all that sort of thing. This satisfies the Italian rabbis, believe it, because they, they were so weak and the, and the guyim was so tough on them, they're not looking for an internal Jewish war. As long as the guy backs off, as long as he's not publicly and deliberately persisting in challenging the Hashkafic status quo, the Hashkafic consensus, then he's part of the Tzibor. You know, we'll grumble about him, but that's what Jews do. Um, and that's what scared Azari Rossi more than anything else. He is no Spinoza. I mean, he don't want to excommunicate and ran out of community. He, he wants to dive in the Mincha, you know what I mean? Like I say, he wants to be the Balkari next week, or, or, or the Balshacharis, or something like that. Um, the book arrived in, Isra in Israel uh, not long after this, okay, because a lot of communication in these years, uh, all the famous books of Riyosu Kara published in Venice, you get it? And financed by Menachem Azari Defano, who, and Fano was right next to Ferrara. So Menachem Azari Defano was the one who is, issues a criticism of the writings of Azari de Rossi, and so Alicia um, Galico gets a hold of it. Alicia Galico is an Italian Jew who, who, like we say, they flipped and went to Lakewood, you know. So he moved to Tzfat and he became part of the yeshiva and the Beisdin of Yosef Karo. Yosef Karo and Tzfat in the 1500s, that is the acme of orthodoxy, my friends. Okay, that is where it goes. And uh, he says like this, he says, uh, look at this book. And Yosef Karo sees it. And he reads a couple of pages, he's absolutely shocked. And he says over here, you write up the cherem, I'll sign it. This book should be burned. In fact, the author should be burned. All this stuff should go down to death. The day he's supposed to sign it, he dies. Okay? understand? Ever since then becomes a controversy. Uh, some say, see, he was ready to condemn it, therefore the book is totally objectionable and should be burned even today. Others, you'll be surprised, like him. They say, if he passed away before he signed it, it must be a sign from heaven that the book was okay. You understand? Read with caution, but well, you know, the, 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 the book is okay. Final disposition. The book can be read, the Italian rabbis say, but the copy has to be with the rabbi, you have to get special permission. Right off the bat, you know, it's like, no, you know what it's like? It's like having the filter on the internet. I'm watching what you're reading, you know? Imagine an average guy, I mean, <laughs> the, what kind of a guy goes to the rub, rub behind him and says, I'd like to borrow a copy <laughs> of the morning name of Isaiah de Ross. Like, what? You think? Uh, uh, now, let me tell you something. Let me tell you a good part. This book is unreadable. It's written horribly. It's written horribly. Everybody knows this. It's written in rabbinic Hebrew, not in, in, in uh, biblical Hebrew. 
It's a dover you do. It's very hard to get through. He brings one proof after another from the most obscure people, and you know some of it is very learned. Some of the people he bought into are famous forgers that they didn't know about at the time, Viterbo and the people. You know, it's in there. And he brings one, and, and it's erudite. He brings one after another. You have to have a lot of this flesh to get through to the good stuff, so to speak. You understand? And so it's not a, it's not really a danger. It's going to become a bestseller in Barnes and Noble. Do you get it? This will be a, one of those books on the shelf if there, ever, if there ever was one. You have to understand. In, in 1578, a few years after he dies in Mantua, uh, in 1600, which is 22 years later, an 80-year-old rabbi called the Marala Prague, maybe you've heard of him, uh, publishes an attack on the book 22 years after Azari died called the Be'er Agola. I can guarantee you the Be'er Agola is 100 times more famous than, uh, and read by a million more people called the Marala, the Marala, than the book that he wrote it against. Okay? Now, obviously, why is he writing this 25 years, a quarter century after the death of the author? This stuff must have, copies must have gotten to Prague, must have really gotten under the skin of the morale. He had a big yeshiva. We know the morale had a big yeshiva. That, if you have a big yeshiva, you have guys on the right, you have guys on the left, you have guys in the middle. There was an interest in the morale's yeshiva in history. The Tzemach David, one of the famous early Ashkenazi history books, comes from out of his yeshiva from David Gans. It's of a different nature. But the Tzemach David, by the way, talks about his Ayat Rossi. He said it's a very interesting book. Of course, we don't hold that way, but that's what he writes. You know, he went a little too far, but it's a very interesting book. And so, really, get a gun under his uh, skin. He curses Azariah. All right? He said, this guy goes straight, one way ticket to hell for what he did. He said, I can't believe a Jew talks this way. It sounds like sounds like come from the Catholic Church, the way he's making fun of the uh, Chazal. Um, but he doesn't disprove the arguments, you understand? Uh, the morale was not really into history. Again, that's not who he was. The morale was a great Talmud Chacham and Gemara and the Shas and Postgame and all that. And the morale is into, into uh, I guess you call it theosophy. No, it's religious philosophy, how God operates in the world. That's the Kisui morale that fascinates people till today. I would say the morale is the most important and seminal influence on modern from Jewish thought in the last 500 years. I believe I'm right about that. His ideas and thought, especially now in the last hundred years, you know, with the Hasidim or of Dessler and all the rest of it, the Yeshivisha, Machshavas, and the Hashkafa, as they call it, all heavily influenced by the ideas of the Maral, not by the Rossi. Uh, he applies, for our purposes, the Maral applies to historical Agatatas, the approach of the Rambam to anthropomorphic Agatatas. You understand? Which is that, oh, you don't take it literally, but you don't make fun of it either. And by that I mean, I'll just give you one example with which I started. He said this, how can you say they made up the story and the bugger went up the nose? You think they're liars? They just tell myths in order to keep the people happy. Then the rabbi is a bunch of manipulators of public opinion, the outrageous scoundrels, and all the rest of it. Here's rather what happened. The bug represents a tumor. When the bug went up the nose, he doesn't use this language because he's writing in the 16th century, but it's fascinating to those who are doctors will read it represents a little organism that starts biting away at the thing and little by little metastasizing, you know, it spreads bigger and bigger. By the time it's finished and by the time when they make the autopsy, it's, you know, what's in his head? You know, what do they find in the skull? A huge tumor with, so to speak, with, so to speak, I have with iron uh, things, which was terribly painful, no question about it. I mean, if this is true, uh, Titus had a horrible death. Agreed? I mean, there was no, no medicine. I mean, even today, it's, it's, it's a horrible death. But there was no bug up the nose. <laughs> right? Notice, even when he said it, but the, but the morale will say like this. He said, but you have to understand, when they used this imagery, they weren't interested in the historicity of it. They were trying to convey a point. They conveyed the idea 
that the tumor, they described in the form, because they didn't use the modern scientific language, they go the tumor in, in a vivid form, as they say, of the bird and all the rest. But you can read it in English, by the way. Um, the Be'er Hagola has been translated more or less substantially uh, by Rabbi Adlerstein and uh, published by Art School. Okay? Uh, I'm sure somebody must have a copy or something like that. And, uh, you know, he didn't translate it word for word uh, because the Maral is very wordy, but he does give the basic idea of it. It's a whole bunch of agatas that are strange. And uh, this one about Titus is, is, is very interesting uh, to read, as they say before. And after screaming at him about all the rest of it, he also doesn't assert the historicity that an actual bugger went up the nose. You understand? But rather, as a, as a metaphor, but the, it's, it's of a completely different way of expressing the metaphor. It's a sublime metaphor uh, presented by great experts in sublimity who know how to convey a deep theological messages uh, to the masses. Instead of saying, it's a bunch of rabbis made up a myth, you know, a fairy tale, because they're trying to, like, the Brothers Grimm or something like that, you know, and trying to show you the big bad Titus got what's coming to him. And therein lies an uh, entire hashkafic world of difference, you see? And uh, there, now, by the way, the morale doesn't deal with the question, did Titus die of a brain tumor? Uh, which I'm not sure how you could get to that based on what they knew in science in those days. And, you know, I, 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 I don't know. I didn't research it, but I don't think any Roman historian will say they opened them up and found, what would it do, a black or something like that in the, in the head. But, uh, but that's not even important, you understand, um, as he sees this. So what's the final result? The book and historical approach uh, coexisted uneasily at the margins of Frum culture for the next hundreds of years. Many Gdolim clearly were familiar with it, and they quoted it occasionally and selectively. If you know the Tosis Yontov, he quotes it uh, fairly often. You have to know what it means. That's the Zayi Darasi. You understand? And the Nesiba Velazhin, somebody recently published a whole dissertation show him how many times that he quotes in his writing. These are Orthodox rabbis, by the way. And uh, so in other words, no, no, you see very clearly an elitist attitude. You can, some people, if they know what they're doing, can read the Sefer and pick the good from the bad. You get it? You should stay away from it because you won't know how to do that. But the right person, it's, look, the Nesiba, you know, the, the right person can go and do it. Some have a love-hate relationship with it. Like the Chacham Tzim Yonis Abishes, that they'll quote it, but then they'll condemn it back and forth. Uh, the best one is Yaakov Emden, who's a contemporary of this, but I don't have a picture of him, where, he's, where in the first half of his life he's writing and damning this book to hell. And then in the second half of his life he changes his mind and he says, Losis Edomi, Azari Min Ha'adumim. Get it? The Rossi, red. Losis Edomi Kiachichohu. Meaning, and, and ironically, Rehachim himself ended up applying historical criticism to the text of the Zohar and in Mitpachas uh, Sofrim. So it's a funny kind of a, a to concluding observation. Azariah's example was a negative one as far as the firm world is concerned. He queered the, the study of history for the next centuries, maybe down till today, because he said, look what happened when a firm guy got in this. It was a disaster. You understand? In the very firm world, history was not seen as enlightening, but as subversive for the rest of the 1600s, the 1700s, the 1800s, and arguably till the present day. You understand? Thanks to his example. Uh, hence the yeshiva world generally ignored and, and avoided all scientific history that wasn't properly weighted. In the end, the firm world viewed and views the role and value of history as edifying and pleasing rhetoric, not as deconstructive uh, search for unpleasant factoids. So they hold like Cicero. Oh, you can get that, okay. Cicero famously said, history is, is, is a rhetorical device. 
It's to make you uh, amused and feel good about you know, uh, life in Rome and all that sort of thing. That's the from attitude towards yesterday. You know, what we call arts was it. You give me a book that'll show me something good about the Gedolim or the rest of it, that's something I'm, I, I, I want to read. I'm not interested in deconstructing facts. Um, Sister has worked so far. Uh, it's up to 2015. They, let's put it this way. They did not, the from world has never gotten the attitude of Admiral Farragut. Do you have that in there? You know, <laughs> where he says, let the facts go where they are and the heck with it. You understand? That, that's, that is not the from attitude at all. Cicero, my friends, has worked so far, but it may breed cynicism in the age of the internet and the YouTube. This is a question of the 21st century. With that, I say good night. <laughs>